0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, August 28th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. How the Anthropocene has had a bigger impact on North America than the last Ice Age. The Washington border town that can't access either Canada or the U.S. anymore. How to celebrate Independent Bookstore Day this weekend. A make-your-own mashup site that's a blast from the past and how to see Jupiter, Saturn, and the Moon all together tonight. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. New research recently presented at the annual meeting of the Ecological Society of America indicates that humans have changed North American landscapes more than happened at the end of the most recent Ice Age. And we're not just talking about, like, humans throughout human history— just in the last 250 years of human history, 250 years of humans on this continent have altered the land more than the Pleistocene epoch. The Pleistocene epoch began 2.5 million years ago and ended just under 12,000 years ago. It was what we generally think of as the Ice Age, and the end of it is the last time that glaciers covered huge swaths of the planet. As it ended, the ecosystem changed drastically, with grasslands and forests emerging. But these last 250 years, about since the signing of the Declaration of Independence, this time period which you might have heard is now being called the Anthropocene due to humans' outsized impact on the Earth, this period of time has found to have caused even more of a drastic change than that end of the Ice Age. Quoting Earther, To quantify these ecological changes, the researchers examined hundreds of years of fossil records from the Global Neotoma Paleoecology Database. By looking at shifts in fossilized pollen records gleaned from records of sediment cores, they were able to determine what types of vegetation lived in different locations across North America at different times. In particular, they looked for signs of abrupt, system-wide transitions, such as when a grassland becomes a forest, or when an oak forest sprouts up where a spruce forest once was. The researchers looked at how the pollen records changed over 250-year-long periods. Throughout the Pleistocene, they observed an average of about 10 abrupt shifts across 100 sites in each 250-year stretch. That's a massive amount of fast change, but even more change followed once humans showed up in force. Between 1700 and 1950, the researchers observed 20 abrupt changes per 100 sites, end quote. The cause of these changes is believed to be, based on prior research, a combination of agriculture, pollution, logging, fishing, extracting fossil fuels, and going along with much of that, the ensuing climate crisis. The researchers point to the Midwest, the Southwest, and the Southeast as having undergone the most radical changes, while the relatively colder, less fertile regions of northern Canada, the Pacific Northwest, and Alaska saw fewer changes, and the huge amounts of logging and farming in the former regions also played a role in how much they changed. Because we have not slowed down a lot of the activity that has led to these changes, it's unlikely to stop unless we make a serious effort. We could lose entire ecosystems, wetlands, coral reefs, and even rainforests in a matter of decades. Quoting again, We rely on these ecosystems for our lives, said Tricia Spanbauer, an ecologist at University of Toledo who worked on the new study. I work in freshwater ecosystems. If we were to have an abrupt change in those systems, since there are people who rely on them for drinking water or agricultural water, that's a huge issue. And the same is true for changes in vegetation and marine ecosystems. If either the Amazon rainforest or Great Barrier Reef collapses, for instance, entire societies will lose their sources of food, and the planet will lose an important carbon sink, further putting us in peril. Other ecosystems would replace them, but we don't know what they'd look like or exactly what it would mean for us. End quote. Not a super uplifting start to the show, but in short, we really need to get our act together. Point Roberts, Washington, a town at the very southern tip of the Twasun Peninsula, a peninsula mostly located in British Columbia, Canada, but Point Roberts falls beneath the boundary line on the 49th parallel and is therefore a part of the United States. But being a peninsula, whenever residents want to cross into mainland Washington in the US, they actually have to drive up through the border checkpoints of Canada and then back down into the US. Despite how much of a hassle that might sound like it is, residents and border agents were used to it. The towns have an easy relationship, and for many, the trip is only about a seven minute drive. With Point Roberts being such a small town, it wasn't uncommon for residents to pass through Canada multiple times a day as they ran errands and attended activities or work in both mainland Washington and in Canada. But when cross-border travel was restricted in March due to the pandemic, the 1,300 residents of Point Roberts found themselves unexpectedly isolated. The only other closure in recent memory was half a day following 9-11, and this one has gone on for months. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Residents of Point Roberts can cross the border only to work, pick up prescriptions, or go to a doctor's appointment in the mainland U.S., and they're not allowed to stop in Canada at all during the trip. The only other way to reach the mainland is by private boat or in the twice-weekly $135 flight to Bellingham, Washington. End quote. And it's not just U.S. citizens in Point Roberts trying to get to Washington or even to familiar spots in Canada. There are also Canadian citizens who own homes, boats, and livestock in Point Roberts that they've been unable to go take care of. And many businesses in Point Roberts depend on tourism from Canadians, especially during the summer months. Quoting again, Jessie Hatinja, who has three teenagers, said that between the kids' sports practices and errands, it wasn't uncommon for her to cross the border as frequently as nine times a day. Now, her daughter, an accomplished gymnast, and her hockey-playing son are trying to train via Zoom in their backyard. My daughter's teammates are all together in Canada. They're in the gym and their life hasn't changed, she said. The last time Patinja drove through Canada for approved business on the mainland, a pang of sadness hit her when she passed her favorite Greek restaurant. She and her husband used to go there every Friday. They know the servers by name and the servers know their usual orders. Now, however, it would be illegal for her to even pick up a takeout order. For us in Point Roberts, with the lack of services and ability to cross, we're very restricted, she said. I feel like we're on house arrest, end quote. Point Roberts has an elementary school that serves children up to the third grade, but after that, they have to take a 40-minute bus ride through Canada to attend school in Blaine, Washington, on the mainland. Some residents, like Katinja's son, attend school in Canada. Either way, if any of those schools are resuming in-person classes this fall, Point Roberts kids will be unable to attend. Many residents and local officials on both sides of the border have been writing petitions and sending letters to both President Trump and Prime Minister Trudeau. For a while, nothing was changing. There was no response given to their unique situation. However, that finally changed this week when Point Roberts residents finally got a small win. Once a week, on Tuesdays, there will be a free ferry service from Point Roberts to Blaine Harbor in mainland Washington. Though it's free, residents have to register online in advance, and it's all first-come, first-serve. There is the possibility of adding a second day a week if demand is high enough, and U.S. officials say they're working with their Canadian counterparts on some sort of travel exception, since as of now, the travel ban is expected to go through at least the 21st of September, and probably be renewed after that. Tomorrow, Saturday the 29th, is Independent Bookstore Day. Founded in 2015, it is a day to spread awareness about independent bookstores and help increase their sales. Indie bookstores are in a more precarious situation than ever this year, with lockdown measures forcing many to close their doors temporarily or permanently. So if you've still got a local independent bookstore that you can buy from this weekend, I'm sure they would be very appreciative. And if there's not one near you but you would still like to support one, I have two recommendations. First, on cocky.org today, there was a quick link from Oprah's O Magazine website with a map of over 100 black-owned bookstores in the United States. So you can either find one near you or simply go to their website and make a purchase, because many independent bookstores do ship throughout the nation, if not internationally in some cases. Or another option, you can also buy books through bookshop.org. This is a site that launched last year that gives 10% of all sales to independent bookstores by putting a percentage of every sale into a pool that then gets distributed. And they also have methods for independent bookstores to make larger cuts of purchases when people shop through that store's online storefront. So you can also go to bookshop.org and look up a store that you want to support and buy through there. I have personally found that I've been able to shop through my local bookstore's bookshop.org storefront and buy titles that they don't currently have in stock at the store. So that is one option if you're looking for a particular book. But it is not all about buying books. There are hundreds of virtual events happening tomorrow at bookstores all over the U.S., Events with all manner of authors, all kinds of panels. I will put a link to the Independent Bookstore Day's official website in the show notes so you can peruse any that you want to attend. And since so much is virtual this year, there is so much to choose from. And one independent bookstore that kicked festivities off early in a big way is Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, who this morning made headlines by announcing that they will no longer sell directly on Amazon. Powell's is one of the largest independent bookstores in the nation, so this is a fairly big statement from them. Emily Powell, the company's chief executive, said in a letter to customers, quote, "We understand that in many communities, Amazon and big box retail chains have become the only option. And yet, when it comes to our local community and the community of independent bookstores around the u s, we must take a stand." end quote, While Amazon was a long-time sales generator for the stores since the pandemic, Powell's has seen their sales from Amazon steadily decrease. And as it was a relationship they had never ethically felt great about, they used the changing landscape as an opportunity to cut ties completely. As the consumer economy continues to change through this pandemic, and as Amazon faces more and more backlash, we may see other stores follow in their footsteps. But whatever happens in the future, this weekend is a great opportunity to support and celebrate those small businesses and independent bookstores. All right, so this is a site that's been around since 2017, so maybe some of you have heard of it before, but I only just discovered it today, so maybe it is new for some of you as well. It is called 2007 Forever, or alternatively, The Magic iPod. Designed by Race Archibald, a data analyst from New York, it's a site that allows you to make mashups of songs that slapped in the year 2007. Many of them came out earlier than that, but they were the hits that we still loved back in those golden days when flared jeans had finally gone out of style, the iPhone made its debut, and hope and change filled the air as Senator Barack Obama campaigned for president. The site, though it was made in 2017, looks closer to something built in 2007, and though a few articles about it from when it launched erroneously claimed that it did begin in 2007, those rumors were false. Archibald, the site's creator, was in middle school in 2007, and while I'm sure there are some middle schoolers who could figure out how to build this, Archibald said that he didn't even start working on mashups until he was in college. Basically, there are 43 songs listed, divided into two sides. You've got rap and hip-hop on one side, with indie, pop-punk, and alt-rock on the other. You click on a rapper hip-hop song, and a selection of the indie, pop-punk, alt-rock tracks are highlighted for you to choose from. And then, voila! Instant mashup. You can listen to the whole track and even download it if you found one that's particularly awesome or weird that you want to share around. I stumbled on what I think is a pretty hilarious mashup on my very first go when I went for for L's Laffy Taffy combined with Green Day's Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Here's a sample. Love 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 Sadly, you can't just mix up whichever ones you want. There are some restrictions. For example, I wanted to mash up the two biggest hits of my senior year of high school, Hey There Delilah and Crank That Soldier Boy, but it wouldn't let me, so I guess I'll just have to find someone to do that for me manually. Archibald told The Ringer back in 2017, quote, They're all pre-mixed. I made all of them and just sat down for a couple of weekends and cranked them out for like 10 hour sessions at a time. I listened to them before I released the site, once each pretty much, so when people say one's good, it's often kind of news to me as well. That's what's cool about it. You're sort of making them yourself. The element of discovery just makes it a much more fun, playful experience. Which in the end, that's what it should be. Mashups are not high art. They should just be a silly, fun thing that anyone can put together. End quote. He says he was inspired to make the site because he wanted to give back and maybe raise people's spirits somehow during the heightening political climate of our time. He chose to make this site without ads and just a small ask for people to donate to the ACLU. And conveniently, the hope there was also that it would protect him from copyright claims since he wasn't making any money off of it. And he's right. Part of what makes it so fun is not that you're just discovering funny or impressive mashups on YouTube, but that it feels like you've had a hand in making them yourself. However, if you do just want to listen to some seriously impressive mashups, I, as always, have to recommend my friend Neil Ciceriga's trio of mashup albums, Mouth Sounds, Mouth Silence, and Mouth Moods. They're so comprehensive and far-reaching that just calling them mashups isn't quite doing them justice. I mean, when something pulls samples from several different songs, layers in newsreels and sound effects from 90s TV, and seamlessly hides countless Smash Mouth easter eggs in it, is it still a mashup? I don't know. But those albums are certainly an experience, and I highly recommend them, especially if you're still hankering for more after playing around on 2007 Forever. If you look up at the sky tonight or tomorrow night, you may be able to get a glimpse of Jupiter, Saturn, and the moon all at once. And you won't even have to stay up super late to do it. Space.com says you should be able to spot them around 8.30pm local time. The moon and Jupiter should be roughly one quarter up from the horizon. Jupiter will be just a bit above and to the left of the moon, which will be well illuminated just a few days past its first quarter phase. Saturn will be a bit harder to see as it's not as bright as Jupiter. It just looks like a kind of bright star, but not as bright as its fellow gas giant, and is also a bit yellower. Quoting Space.com, Saturn will be 9 degrees to the left of the moon. Your clenched fist held at arm's length is equal to roughly 10 degrees in width. So on Friday evening, Saturn will be found nearly one fist to the left of the moon. End quote. But on Saturday, the moon, which appears to move faster because it's closer to us, will have shifted 5.5 degrees to Saturn's left. And if the weather doesn't cooperate for you this weekend, all three will join in the sky again on September 24th and 25th. And one more cool thing, Jupiter and Saturn rarely get closer than a degree or two apart. But this year, on the winter solstice, December 21st, they'll be just a tenth of a degree apart from one another that is the closest they've been since 1623. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. Jason actually posted an interview that he did with me over on the website yesterday. Talked a little bit about the work that I do outside of this podcast and some related topics. So if you're interested, you can go over to Kotki.org to read that. And shout out to any listeners who have come over from Kotki. I hope you've been enjoying the show as much as I enjoy making it. But for now, I am off to try to get that Soldier Boy and Hey There Delilah mashup to work. I hope that you have a good weekend, and I will talk to you again on Monday.